0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, we're going to cover the last bit of the chapter. A fairly good chunk compared to what we have been dealing with. We're gonna pick up in verse 26 and then deal with the rest of the chapter. We've been talking about for the last several months God's relationship to to the nation of, of Israel. How God is is dealing with them, the purpose of of saving Gentiles. This really, this objection that some people in Paul's day are, are having when they look at the mass rejection that is going on by the people of Israel, and they're they're saying, "Did God's word fail here? Has God's word failed because of all these promises? Aren't these His people? Didn't He promise to?" To, to save them? Didn't he promise to, to deal with them? And in here, there's this mass rejection going on, but not only that, not only is there a mass rejection among the people of Israel, but there's a, a revival going on amongst Gentiles. It seems backwards. So that's what we're dealing with. And if you remember, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but if you remember, basically what... Paul does here in these chapters, 9 through 11, is take seven different lines of of argument in showing that God's word has not failed. And we've kind of mentioned those as we've gone. We haven't really structured our outline on those, but we've mentioned them as we've gone. And today we're in the third, or the, the seventh and final point that Paul is, is making, and we'll deal with that point, just all of it in, in one message today, because it is a, a really a, a culmination of Paul's thought through these whole chapters. So if you would, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse twenty six. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, to him, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I I thank you for this tremendous doxology at the end of these chapters. It, It puts all of this into perspective. That we've dealt with some tremendously difficult subjects. The doctrine of election, predestination, reprobation, the free offer of the gospel, and how that fits. But as Paul is talking about all of these things, and as he brings this line of argument to a close, He breaks out in doxology, in praise, talking about the the wisdom and the greatness of God. Lord, we pray that as we approach this text this morning, that we too would see the wisdom, the greatness of God, that we would leave rejoicing in doxology because the ways of God are so great and what he's doing in, in us is great. Lord, we pray You would work this way. We pray that you would do more than we can ask or think through the proclamation of your word. We pray that your spirit would work in in ways that we can't imagine in the hearts and the lives of people. We know that's your business. Lord, and we pray that we're faithful and that you work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hundred years ago or so, there was a, a king of Prussia, his name was uh, Frederick, I believe, and he was having a, a discussion with his chaplain about the truth claims of the Bible. And, and according to the story, the king was very skeptical of the Bible's truth because of the atheistic influences in his life. And he told the chaplain if the Bible is true, it should be very easy to prove. Now, he also made the case, the king did, that he didn't want to spend time reading it because he had no desire to read the book. But he did want to know if it was true. So he told his chaplain that if it's true, you should be able to prove the Bible's inspiration in a word. Now, seems like an impossible task in a word. That's not really literally what he meant. He was asking for a short proof of inspiration. But the chaplain reportedly turned to him and said, but you know, king, it is possible to give proof of the Bible's inspiration in one word literally. And the king then demanded, I want to know this magic word that carries the Bible's, that carries the the weight of the Bible's inspiration on its shoulders. And the chaplain said, the word is, is this. It's Israel. Now there are, Many proofs of the Bible's inspiration, convincing proofs. But we must admit that the nation of Israel throughout the past 4,000 years has been pretty remarkable. They've been disposed of their homeland, dispersed all over the world. Basically, when we look at this people and we see that she survived where other peoples didn't. Couple this with God's relationship with the people, prophecies concerning the nation there is certainly strong evidence for the Bible's inspiration when you look at that people. Think about it this way. One might be tempted to think that the survival of the Jewish people may suggest that God really didn't care for them. All the the trials, the persecutions, I mean, you just think of the Holocaust. God preserved this people this long to do that to them? forced it to scatter all over. They don't have a, a homeland. God preserved that people, though, not because he didn't care for them, but because he does care for them. And what we've been seeing in these last chapters here, 9 through 11, is that God does have a plan. It, it may seem like that, that God is preserving these people only to, to pour out judgment on them that he doesn't care about them. But what we're seeing here is that God does have a plan. God does care for these people. Now, people at the time of Paul are looking at the nation of Israel. They're seeing their rejection of the Messiah. They're saying, God said these people were special. Rejecting the Messiah... Paul has has clearly taught that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin, those that don't believe in Jesus, that his death and resurrection secured eternal life by bearing the, the weight of sin and death on himself for every person that would turn and believe in him. Paul taught this. Now, people in Paul's day are seeing the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people and wondering, has God's word failed? God even care about them anymore? Has God turned his attention somewhere else? There is a very popular view in theology that says exactly that, by the way. It says that God turned his attention from Israel because of their rejection and he turned it toward the church. Some people go so far as to say the church replaces Israel. It's called replacement theology. We talked about it last time. It's dangerous. But people are wondering, so has God's word failed? Has he turned his attention somewhere else? Certainly looks like that. Gentiles all over the place are getting saved. But Paul is taught, if they're not believing, then according to this theology of Paul, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, they're going to stand condemned. So here's these Jewish people who are not believing, who are condemned in Paul's theology. So now they're asking Paul, has God's word failed? Now, Paul's answer to this question has been definitive. No, no. Absolutely not. In fact, Paul has given seven reasons that we mentioned earlier why his answer is no. Let me just go back really quickly and, and reiterate those seven reasons so you can see them all and then see where we end up here today. These come from James Boyce, by the way. And he says this. In uh, Reason number one, in chapters chapter 9, verses 6 through 26, we see that Paul is arguing that God's word has not failed because all whom God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. His purpose in election is that all who are elected will be saved. Second line of argument is in 9, 25 through 29. The argument continues and he says... Paul says that, that God had previously revealed, so he's quoting the Old Testament, he had previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved, that some Gentiles would be. So we're going, and we're going to come back to this because it seems to be a little bit in contrast with today's point and even Paul's words that we read in, in Romans chapter 11. But in other words, this is not a surprise that what's happening right now should not be a surprise because God already said it would. Third, a long portion of Paul's argument, chapter 9, 30 through 10, 21, is that God's word has not failed because the unbelief of the Jews was their own responsibility. It wasn't, it's not on God. God is not blamed for their unbelief. Four, God's word has not failed because some Jews, this includes Paul, have believed and are saved. God's word has not failed because, and Paul puts himself in this category in 11.1, some have believed. They're not all lost. In 5, in chapter 11, verses uh, 2 through 10, we see that God's word has not failed because it has always been the case that not all Jews, but only a remnant of them have been saved. Six. This is what we just spent a considerable amount of time on. And that is that God's plans for Israel have not failed because the salvation of the Gentiles that is occurring at this time, the time that Paul is writing, is meant to arouse Israel to envy and be the means in which God saves many Jews. That's in 11, verses 11 through 24. So now, finally... In 25 through the rest of the chapter, God's purpose toward the nation of Israel has not failed because in the end all Israel will be saved. That's the last, that's the last argument. That's where we are today. And that's that's the title of the, the message: all Israel will be saved. I said, I'd come back to the, the second point, and we should do that for a moment. If you look at verse 26 in chapter 11, we see Paul clearly says that all Israel will be saved. So so that's where we get point number seven. And if you remember these points, right, James Boyce puts them out, and and you see it, it clearly in Paul's argument. But after Paul goes through all of this, all of these arguments, he says, you see all Israel will be saved. In this way, God's word has not failed. But Boyce's second point seems to suggest that all Israel isn't going to be saved. Flip back to chapter nine, if you would. I want you to see this. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel may be as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant of them will be saved. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? In that text, he goes on and makes it clear that God has not laid waste to the nation like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved some of them. He saved a remnant. Of course, Paul's point here is that if if one were to suggest that God's word had failed then why would he even save some of them? He hasn't abandoned the nation. That was his point back in in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, he goes on to say that unbelief was the fault of the Jews themselves and not God. So now, or how, let me ask the question, how is it that Paul can say that not all Israel will be saved on one hand and then say that all Israel will be saved, on the other hand, in chapter 11. I think we've already answered this question in previous messages, probably a few times. But let me just reiterate the answer here. And to do that, we need to recognize that that chapter 9, verse 27 here, Paul is speaking of the physical nation of Israel. The sons of Abraham, though they number as sands of the the seashore. He's talking about the, the physical nation. And out of that group, some will be saved. So when he's talking about Israel, at the end of chapter 11, he's speaking about Israel as the people of God. The people that God has chosen for his own possession. A people made up from both Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about true Israel. If you look back at the start of this argument in chapter 9, he tells us where he's going, where he's going to end up. The way that Paul is is speaking of Israel here should be very clear to us because Paul has has told us that this is where he was going to end up. He's just saying in chapter 11, see, this is what I meant in chapter 9. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, after Paul speaks of his mourning, his broken heart toward the nation of Israel for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, he starts his argument in verse 6, saying, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See what he's doing there? It's quite easy to understand, really, And that is that just because one is a physical descendant of Abraham does not automatically mean that they will inherit eternal life. Only those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will. So a true descendant or child of Abraham are those who follow him in faith. Those who trust in the promise of God just as Abraham did. That's Paul's point. So at the end of his argument, it's very fitting that Paul return to this point and say, in essence, see, so God's word has not failed because in the end, all Israel will be saved. All those that God has predestined to eternal life, to faith in Christ Jesus will come to faith. You see, All that God has promised is coming to fruition. See, all that God has planned is happening. God is accomplishing what God wants to accomplish. God's plan is happening. See, this is how he can say, All Israel will be saved. Every single one that he predestined to faith in Christ Jesus, Jew or Gentile, this calling of people to his own purpose, for his own glory, is happening. So, let's spend a few minutes here and and work our way through these verses at the end of chapter 11. I'm gonna pick this up before I forget. Okay. Now, if you remember, Paul has, has just given us a, an illustration of a tree and, and branches, right, that are connected to a, a, bro- a, a root. The, the point goes from the Gentiles and also the Jews that are connected to this root, which is Abraham. In that illustration, we see that there are those Jewish branches that have been pruned away, and Gentile ones that have been grafted in. And there's a, a warning there, if you remember, that the Gentiles shouldn't boast of their present favored position. They should not presume on God's kindness, but remember that God is just and that God punishes sin, and especially the sin of unbelief. Remember that the kindness and severity of, of God in that conversation last week? Now, Paul says in verse 25 lest you become wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, he says. I think this is, think this is absolutely fascinating. This mystery that a, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the, the fullness of Gentiles has come in. So he's, he's letting them in on a, a mystery. Now, <laughs> What do you think of when you, you hear the word mystery? I think of a, a magician. I know there's a, a trick to pulling a rabbit out of a hat, to sawing somebody in half. You know, there's, there's mirrors involved and all of it. I, I get it. I mean, when somebody makes somebody disappear, and they reappear somebody else. I, I know it's a, a trick. I saw a, a card trick one time where these people were on a, a bus driving down the road. And this guy's in the, on the aisle, you know, and he's talking to a lady across the aisle, and he takes out his, his deck of cards, and he says, choose a card. So she chooses a card. She signs it with a Sharpie. She puts it back in. He, he shuffles the deck of cards. He stands up. He takes the 52 cards, chucks them at the front windshield of the bus. And you've guessed it, one card stuck on the windshield, and it was the card that was signed by the the lady. But not only that, it was on the outside of the windshield. So the bus had to stop, the guy climbed out of the bus, climbed up on the front of the bus, got the card. I mean, it's it's a mystery on how those things happen. I'll probably never know. I've resigned myself to not know, just being entertained by the mystery. I think that's what is cool about magic, is the question. How did he do that? But... We know there's a way, we just don't know it, and that's what entertains us. Now, Paul is not using the word mystery that way. In the, in the ancient world, mystery was something that was unknown to, to most people, but specifically revealed to some. In other words, there are things that no one knows because it has not been revealed to them and no amount of human reasoning would allow a person to know that knowledge. In other words, a mystery is something that is unknowable unless it is revealed by God himself to you or that person. You as human beings in that sense, not you. So here... Paul is saying, God has made known a mystery, something that was previously unknown, now it's becoming known. Charles Hodge defined the word mystery this way. He said, A mystery is any future event which could be known only by divine revelation. Henry Ironside said much the same thing, but added... On to that, he says, mysteries in the New Testament are things that we should know because God revealed them to us. They were unknowable, now they're knowable, only by God's revelation. We should know them, but largely they're ignored by Christians today. He makes a good point. They're revealed because God wants you to know about them. I want us to think about this for a moment. Paul says here, unless you become wise in your own sight, you need to know this mystery. In other words, he's saying that you need to know this so you're not conceited, you're not arrogant. There's a reason for Paul telling us this. But Before we really get into that, we need to say another word about mysteries, though. If mysteries are things that we would never know on our own, but are revealed to us, That's the only way that we know them. Then how do we know what a mystery is? Let me explain a little bit what I mean here. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that there, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. And there are things that are revealed that belong to us and our children forever. So there are mysteries or things that we will never know because God has chosen not to reveal them. There's secret things that belong to the Lord. But there's also other things that God has chosen to be revealed. So verse 25 in Romans 11 is an example. He chose to reveal this. And those things are things that belong to us and our children forever. This is where mysticism is so dangerous. is because it elevates the individual to the one whom God is communicating with and saying that there is a mystery and I know it. There's something that belongs to God. There's a secret thing there. And I know it. For instance, if I stood here and, and told you that God told me something, he revealed to me something either about you personally or your, this church or his plan or why he did something, here's, here's the problem with that. And why it's, it's mysticism and not Christianity. And that is because all that God needed to reveal for our benefit that is to be passed down to our children forever and ever has been revealed already. The canon of scripture is closed. There's no more new revelation. The book of Revelation is clear on this. The canon, the 66 books of the Bible is closed. It even pronounces a curse on those who would add to it. So for somebody saying, God told me this, here's a, here's a mystery from God that, that he told me he wants to share with you. Those kind of things don't happen. This is, this is far different, though. Just let me make this distinction. There's far different from saying, I, I believe God is leading me in this direction. It, it, that's far different from saying, here's a, a mystery that is previously unknown to everybody and the only way this mystery in God's mind can be made known is if God makes it known and he's making it known through me to you. The author of Hebrews makes the point very well. Right in the the first chapter, you can look at this if you want to. The author of Hebrews says, long ago, At many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then the author goes on in the first chapter to show the the supremacy of, of Christ. And then in chapter two, he picks up this idea again about how God speaks to us. And he says, therefore, therefore, since now Christ speaks to us, therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Here's the point. God doesn't speak through apostles and and prophets today. He did that already. And what they said has been laid down and captured in scripture. And scripture is sufficient It's necessary and it's sufficient for us. It's all that we need. And therefore, we ought to pay close attention to it lest we drift away from it. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't wait for somebody to reveal mysteries of God to you. God has revealed what is sufficient for you in his word. I find it fascinating that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit and that he would... Come and guide us into truth. And one way he did that was guiding the the authors of Scripture. He moved them to write the the very words of, of Christ himself. That's why Jesus is the eternal word of God. So the question then is, what is this mystery that is being made known this important mystery that can only be made known if, if God wants it to be revealed through Paul to these people and have it written down in Scripture. This, such, this thing that is so important that the people of God ought to know this. He says, the mystery is that there is a partial hardening of the Jewish people until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Notice Paul is giving the, the reason... That he's revealing this mystery, and that is lest you become wise in your own eyes, lest you become conceited. We've we've mentioned some of this before, so I'm not gonna spend much time on it, but just so you're you're thinking about it, how are how are or what ways can we become conceited? And that is thinking that the Gentiles believers have replaced Jewish ones, to think that we can become conceited and thinking that the Gentiles Church is is the end of God's dealing with all people in in history. Thinking that God's plans center around us when really they they don't. We could think that that we're really something special or that, that people that aren't like us are hopeless. But Paul warns against this and says, there is a reason for what God is doing. This partial hardening that will end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Move down to 26. Paul goes on here to say that in this way, all Israel will be saved. Think about what he's just said here for a moment. In in what way? Paul is, is making a reference back to the mystery that has been revealed, that a partial hardening of the Jews has come until the full number of Gentiles has come in And then we're gonna see more Jews come to faith. But notice what God is doing here. He's in essence saying that God is accomplishing his purpose. In Romans 9, we see a line in verse 11 that is so important throughout these chapters. In speaking of Jacob and Esau, he says he speaks of God's purpose in election. And I think that's the point here. Ultimately, God's purpose in election is that His will, His decree, will come to fruition. That all Israel, all those that are descendants of Abraham in faith, that are chosen by Him, will come to faith. That every person that places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is saved. Everyone that the Father has given to Christ. if one reads this thinking that it must be talking about the physical nation of Israel here, notice that that really doesn't make sense. For we know that all Israel was not saved in that sense. Or Paul wouldn't have said what he said at the start of Romans 9 and Romans 10, both. is in agony over the fact that they won't be all saved. The only reasons for Paul's words there is that he understood some of the nation would die apart from Christ Jesus, and he pled with God for their salvation, even wished, in a sense, to trade places with them. To explain this away doesn't work. Certainly, here Paul is talking about God's overall purpose. God, in the end, will accomplish everything that God set out to accomplish. That's what he means in saying all Israel will be saved. God's purpose in election will be complete. Paul then quotes from the Old Testament here from Isaiah 59, 27, Jeremiah 31, Psalm 14 to show that God will deliver the Jewish people through Jesus Christ and there will be many that turn to Christ Jesus. Now, some have thought that this text here refers to the first coming of Christ, but I think it's obvious that Paul is using it as more than that making a reference to a future blessing of Israel, that all the the Gentiles would would come, that the Gentiles shouldn't become conceited because of God's purpose. And that purpose includes both Gentiles and Jews and that God is not finished yet. Skip down to, to verses 28 and 29 then for a couple minutes. It's an interesting statement that Paul makes here. And it And it wouldn't make any sense outside of what we just talked about. He says, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Note that that Paul is is speaking here to the Gentiles. So the, the for your sake is the Gentiles' sake. So the Jews at this time are hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But remember, God's purpose in election We know that that God has a plan, and that plan includes a time of great salvation for the Gentiles to arouse Jewish envy and produce a time when many Jewish people are going to come to faith. So Paul's point here is that the way the Gentiles relate to the Jews that are hostile to the gospel matters. Think about that for a moment. It matters because they do not know who will be saved and who will not be saved. That's God's purpose in election. But the Gentiles are privy to the fact that God will save some of them. And they have no reason to write the Jewish people off. They have no reason to become conceited. The simple point of verse 29 is that those who God have chosen for salvation, God's purpose of election back in chapter nine, those people that God is calling to salvation, that calling is is irrevocable. Then in verse 30, notice what Paul does. He turns his attention to the Gentiles again and says, but just look at yourself. There was a time in which you have been disobedient you were disobedient and you have received mercy now we often don't think like this when we start looking at the people around us who are living in disobedience we often do not think about the fact that there was a time in which we too were disobedient and that's what paul is drawing the gentiles point what he's drawing their eyes to It is only by God's grace and mercy that the Gentiles were not still there. God showed them mercy. Then Paul says, so they are disobedient in order that they will see the mercy that was shown to the Gentiles and they too may receive mercy. Verse 32 is the kicker. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Think about this for a moment. Isn't the point here that we're all on equal footing before God? How can one know mercy if they don't understand disobedience to God and that disobedience to God deserves divine wrath? Arthur Pink says that mercy denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. To understand mercy, one must know something of the misery that will befall them if left in their current trajectory. Notice the two points that Paul is really closing this section with. The first, we've mentioned this already, but I'll say it again. I'll say it how James Boyce says it. He says, to appreciate mercy, we must see it as against the dark backdrop of sin, in these verses, the words mercy and disobedience occur the same number of times. Certainly, mercy is the dominant, dominant, theme here, but how can one understand it without understanding it against the backdrop of the darkness of sin and disobedience? Simply, mercy is not getting what you deserve. How can one understand mercy without understanding what you deserve. Second, notice that one is not saved. one cannot be saved without mercy. I think we need to grasp this here, that the Jewish people are not going to be saved because they are Jewish, and the Gentiles are not going to be saved because they are Gentiles. They're going to be saved solely because of the mercy of God. Paul has established this way back in chapter 3, verse 9 that Jews and Gentiles are both under sin and they deserve the due penalty of their sin and that the only hope they have is the mercy of God sparing the judgment that they deserve. That's mercy. We also must point out that God's mercy towards sinners only makes sense in light of his justice. God always does what is right. Always always does what is right. This is what it means to be God. And what is right is for an all-holy God to deal rightly with sin. Those who commit treasonous acts against God bear the weight for their actions. So for God to do what is right is to deal rightly or justly with sinners. So God for God to withhold punishment, that's mercy, from sinners seems to be in contrast with his justice. And it would be very wrong for us to pit God's justice and mercy against one another. Some have tried to do that. We're not gonna get into that. It doesn't work. It doesn't even make sense Yes, God is God, but God cannot violate who he is. God cannot not become un-God in order to be God over here, and then un-God himself over here to be God over here. It doesn't work. God cannot violate who he is to be who he is. He cannot forsake justice for the sake of mercy. He cannot forsake mercy for the sake of justice. It doesn't make any sense. Therefore, we can receive mercy from God only because Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins, bore the wrath of God on our account. And in this, God is just because he's dealt rightly with sin. And we receive mercy because Jesus died in the place of all those who would believe in him, who would cast themselves on the mercy of God, admit that he is our only hope, and that in Christ Jesus and what he has done, That we could never do anything to earn God's favor, but only throw ourselves on the mercy of an almighty God. Then note, at the very end of the chapter, that Paul is thinking about these things and he's overwhelmed. There's no other way to explain what's happening here in the middle of a letter. He's overwhelmed. He's so amazed at the prospect of what God has done on his behalf. That God would show him mercy. That God would withhold judgment on him because he poured it out on his own son. He's so amazed for him what he has done in Christ that he ends this chapter in doxology, in praise. is all wise, who planned this plan that we could ever have dreamed of. But yet, this is what God is doing. If we came up with a plan, we would plan it totally different and it wouldn't work. We would mess it up. God messes nothing up. He always does what is good. He always does what is right. And because of this, Paul is in praise for this God who is worthy of of knowledge, worthy of our trust, worthy of our adoration. As we think through these last verses in Romans 11, just think about this journey through all of these chapters here and and put yourself, try to put yourself in in the place of the Gentiles in Paul's day hearing this. There's a revival going on amongst you. You're being saved all over the place. You're actually being persecuted and by, by Jews who should be the ones who, who see this and they're not. And you read what Paul is saying here. Largely to Gentiles, he says God is having, God has a a purpose in saving you and that purpose is that others, the Jews in this case, might see what God has done in you and use that to save other people. Simplifying it, that's exactly what he's saying here. God saved you to arouse envy in their hearts that they might see what God has done in you that you're inheriting the promises that should be theirs, that could be theirs. They're going to be envious and it's going to soften their heart and they're going to come to faith in droves. Put yourself in that place. God saved you for a purpose. To accomplish his ultimate purpose. How does that change the way that that you see your salvation? Does it arouse doxology? Do you often think about mercy and what God has done in your own heart? How does that transition to the way that we see others around us? Are we hard? Are we cold? Do we see ourselves as people who God saved just because of us? A lot of Christianity today, that's what it says it's all, God saved you because of you. Somebody made that comment in in Sunday school this morning. It's a good comment. God saved you because of you. Therefore, you go be the best you you can possibly be. It's not what this text is saying. God is saving Gentiles so that they'll be a light to the Jews. When the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, it's very ironic. You go back and and read the the dedication to the temple. In Solomon's day, the temple was this place that was supposed to be a, a light to the Gentiles. The Jews were, a God was blessing the Jews in order that they may bless all the nations around them. But we know the story. Instead of blessing all the nations around them, they took from the nations evil. How does this change the way that we view our own salvation? Does it lead to doxology? How does it affect the way that we view those others around us? Are we a light to them? are we just all about ourselves and keeping what God has done for us? God saved us to glorify himself. And he does that when we let our light shine. You are, Jesus said, a light that's on a hill. Let your light shine. That's who you are. Don't hide it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your tremendous mercy toward us that we do not deserve. Lord, we pray that as we contemplate this text, as we think about why you, you saved us, why you're, you're working in, in us and in not other people, Lord, we realize too that we're part of your plan. Lord, and I pray that we would have an outward focus, not just an inward focus. I pray that we would depend and entrust on you, that you would guide us and and lead us. Continue to work and speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be people who drift from that. That we continue to, to trust in you, hold fast to you. You keep creating us into the people that you want us to be. For your glory, your honor, that we might see droves of people around us become Christians, become saved, and fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ as their only hope. God, we plead for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.